0: Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, professional and executive education for the real world. I'm your host, Kate Joyner. Today we're continuing our cool QUT series, where I speak to some of my QUT colleagues who are at the cutting edge of research with real world implications. With me is distinguished Professor Matt Brown, whose work with a wide range of uh, collaborators in genomics is revolutionising our understanding of the causes of rare and common heritable diseases, cancers and even infectious diseases. Professor Brown has a university-wide role as Director of Genomics and works with colleagues at QUT's Institute of Health and Biomedical Innovation and the School of Biomedical Sciences. He's a clinician scientist who trained initially as a rheumatologist before heading off into a career in immunogenetics research, initially at the University of Oxford and then at the University of Queensland. His particular interest is the disease ankylosing spondylitis We has played a major role dissecting the genetic causes of the disease and developing new treatments for it. He's also deeply interested in the translation of genomics into clinical applications. Hi, Matt.
1: Hi, Kate. Thanks for that introduction and well done on pronouncing ankylosing, ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing
0: spondylitis, I was going to say. I did practice that a lot. So uh, did I get it right? Yeah, you did. Yeah, and what can... does it mean? What is okay, it? Okay,
1: so it's a rheumatic disease. Uh, so it's a disease which predominantly affects the spine and pelvis um, and it causes uh, inflammation and swelling and stiffness in joints and ultimately it results in bone forming across those joints and fusing them, hence ankylosing meaning ah, joining I see. and spondylitis inflammation in the spine and pelvis. But it's of particular interest because it's uh, the risk of developing it is almost entirely inherited. Right, so just bad luck. It's bad luck, yeah. Mm. Um, and so for a genetics researcher, it's a it's a really good disease to study because we can work out what the genes are that are involved in causing it and thereby come up with ideas about how we might treat or prevent it.
0: So that actually, though I haven't got this on my list, Matt. Uh, can I call you Matt, incidentally? I've Please called do. you Professor Brown to this point. No, before I, I always get permission to when, uh, when use the uh, Christian name. Yeah.
1: When I get called Matthew by my wife, I know I'm in trouble. So <laughs> Matt, it is.
0: Matt, oh, thanks, Matt. So <laughs> one of my colleagues said to me, "Could you? Uh, what is the difference between genetics and genomics? I'm assuming one comes out of the other, does it? Like." Mm-hmm.
1: Look, I think it's a pretty semantic difference. So right. um, genomics is, uh, I guess. Uh, more broad than just DNA it's RNA and um the other structural components of that make up chromosomes genetics I think is more purely the, the study to of um just heritable variants mm. and So, actually, I think, though, that the two are pretty much used synonymously nowadays.
0: Okay. Uh, That answers my colleague's question. I said I'd get back to her on that one. Yes. (laughs) So, Matt, you came to my attention um, through, as we often see with um, our colleagues, um, we get to know their work through the media. So... Um, I looked at your work in the week in the recent Weekend Australian, and it had to do with um, I, I'm going to translate it as um, getting quite personalised about treat, treatments for certain kinds of cancer, so being quite specific. So, is um, is that sort of part of your research interests generally, and those of you know the, the colleagues that you work with um, here at QUT and elsewhere?
1: Yeah. So the article in the Australian was about. Um, using sequencing approaches to profile the mutations in cancers that then predict how they're likely to behave and how they're likely to respond to, to different treatments, and obviously chemotherapy in particular. And so, one of the benefits of uh, the Human Genome Project was that it was a massive investment in the capability of doing DNA sequencing. Mm. And so, now we're at a point where we can reasonably cheaply. Uh, sequence a cancer and identify all of the mutations that actually drive the cancer and make it behave the way it actually does and what people worked out was that instead of treating cancers merely on the basis of what the organ of origin of the cancer was but instead you treat it on the basis of the gene that was mutated that caused the cancer that you can do better Uh, Usually, in fact, you take into account both things, not just the mutation, not just the organ. Um, But uh, what happened was that about seven or eight years ago, um, we had built up a very large sequencing capacity here in Brisbane uh, that we were using for research. But as a clinician, I was always looking for ways that we could translate that into clinical practice, and we realised that we would be able to do this, that this research capability had come about and that it really should be applied in clinical practice. And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, so we are the only NATA accredited—that's a, a certified pathology lab accredited service—that provides uh, comprehensive cancer sequencing in this state.
0: Mm, that's amazing. And what was I think? Um, what you stopped and paused over the story—the story of the woman who who undertook this treatment. So the story was sort of run through one particular woman. So there was there was a certain amount of—I mean, she's obviously bad luck, but good luck in that she was um, part. She lived in a certain part of Brisbane. Um, and uh, she had a certain type of heritable disease. So had it not been uh, – that's my understanding. Was it? Right. So her disease yeah. isn't heritable. Yeah. Um, oh, but okay. I'll come
1: back to that bit. But, mm. the, yeah, you're right. So at the moment there is unfortunately a postcode lottery about mm. um, the availability of this service. Mm. So if you live within Metro South, um, then that health service actually funds this – Proper cancer genomic testing. If you live outside of that, there is testing available, um, but it's much more limited testing, and uh, as a consequence, many patients uh, don't end up with uh, treatments that they could have if they had more comprehensive testing. Mm. So one of the things we're working to do is to try to convince the government to actually fund this sort of testing of, uh, more widely through mm-hmm. not just Queensland but through Australia uh, because a high proportion of patients do end up getting treatments for their cancers that they would otherwise miss out on mm-hmm. if you've got that.
0: So the, the Metro South is a trial or a pilot, is that right, or just where no, it's, it's available f- at the moment?
1: It's um, Actually what's happened is that the Metro South um, Health Service have, I guess, stuck their neck out and said, we think this is worth doing, and so they have funded it. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that hasn't happened across the rest of the state, but this patient that was mentioned in the Weekend Australian lives within the Metro South area, and so therefore she was able to have testing. So, just to come back to the heritable bit, um, the cancers are caused by mutations in tissues. Uh, that are uh, what we call somatic mutations and are not throughout all cells in the body, so they're not passed on to the next generation, so they're not heritable. Having said that, about 10% of cancers, people have a heritable predisposition to getting the cancer. And uh, most people know, of course, about the BRCA1 and 2 genes and um, the Angelina Jolie story about um, hereditary breast cancer. So that's one example of hereditary cancer. But even in that circumstance, people to have then have a mutation in a cell that ultimately causes the cancer to develop and that mutation is not inherited.
0: Okay. Yes, I think we've all, uh, you know, either experienced this in our family or certainly with a friend or colleague. So these kind of advances are, you know, uh, are fascinating and, um, you know, have just such wonderful implications. Um, That's kind of one aspect of the work of your personal research and those of your colleagues. What else is happening in your research centre? What questions are you interested in?
1: Okay so um, we work a lot on rheumatic diseases so uh, particularly ankylosing spondylitis that you mentioned um, but also some other um, rheumatic diseases particularly another one called scleroderma which I'll come back to in a little bit. Um, But um, ankylosing spondylitis uh, so far we've uh, mapped 115 different genetic variants that are responsible for just short of a third of the total genetic risk of the disease. And um, we've got a big study with about 25,000 cases from around the world that's currently um, in the process of completing its analysis. Uh, And uh, so we're the global centre for genomics for that disease. And we think that that will roughly double the number of genes that we've actually identified. So from those, we've um, already made some pretty big discoveries about um, how, how the disease is actually caused. And I think now we've got a pretty good handle about what actually drives the disease, and we've already um, led to new treatments coming about in the disease. So, back in 2006 7, we identified um, a genetic variant in a, a receptor for a protein. The receptor is called interleukin 23 receptor, IL 23R. And if you stimulate IL 23R, it leads to the production of other proteins called interleukin 17 and interleukin 22. And we predicted that if you blocked particularly in salukin 17 that it would be effective for the disease and we went to companies particularly Novartis and said we think you should take this drug that you already have in trial for these other diseases where we predict it's not going to work and we think it will work in ankylosing spondylitis and psoriasis and it's now the drug of choice for psoriasis around the world and Mm -hmm. it's a widely used medication for ankylosing spondylitis and in 2016 passed a billion dollars in sales so that is in one year sales more than to that point all of the money that had been spent on genomics and common disease genetics.
0: Mm. So at the point um, uh, of uh, discovery, so you, you mentioned a commercial outcome there, how does it translate from pure research in the lab um, to, that, to that commercial outcome? What's the mechanism there?
1: Right, so look, I mean, what happened in that circumstance was that we we knew that this company had an agent that would work in the disease or should work in the disease. So the commercial outcome was basically we got nothing. They got, <laughs> they got a big <laughs> But on the other hand, um, you know, it was obviously of substantial benefit to patients. Mm-hmm. Um, in other diseases that we're working on, for example, in scleroderma, through our genetics we've identified Um, a potential therapeutic target and we have a compound which we know that in mouse models of the disease is highly effective so if you're a mouse that has scleroderma don't worry we've got you covered Um, so then now we've got to look for ways that we can actually take that forward into clinical practice so that means a lot of a, a big long process that starts with seeing that the medication is safe in patients and then doing trials in healthy individuals to see that the that it is safe and then doing a graded clinical trial program uh, until you've actually done a, a definitive study to show that it works and is safe. And that's a several years process.
0: Mm. Um, it takes a lot of patience. Um, I don't, yes, I mean, patience being patient rather than <laughs> patience to to experiment on, let me be clear. Yeah. So I was quite interested, you know, you're speaking about technology and what it's enabling. And um, I was interested to read about the DNA sequencer um, and how much quicker and, and cheaper it is um, to do that kind of research, maybe even um, 10 years ago. So, um, are we advancing technologically in our ability to? Um, to understand um, the genome and how are we we predicting more advances in um, technological enablement?
1: Yeah, look, totally. The the ability to sequence DNA has massively changed during my career so that um, when I started in genomics in the early 1990s, uh, you could in a day maybe sequence a couple of hundred bases of DNA, remembering that there are 3.3 billion bases in the average in a human cell so now uh, we we took delivery of a new sequencer towards the end of last year and it will sequence um, uh, three or four whole genomes every other day uh, at a cost of about 1500 Australian dollars Uh, so that's a massive increase but there are already other technologies that are around in development which will be uh, cheaper and faster than that so um, there's a Moore's Law of Computing uh, and um, about the basically the change in processing speed of computing chips and that also applies to um, the cost of DNA sequencing where they predict that every year the sequencing cost will halve and pretty much that is the case. So that's what's been happening. And there's a lot of competitive tension in the marketplace at the moment with new companies coming on board and I think that we'll see that DNA sequencing costs for whole genomes will come down to in the region of the cost of an MRI scan in the next two or three years. Mm. Uh, in which case it'll be something that people have done fairly routinely.
0: Have, have it done routinely. Um, and you can't really uh, anticipate the consequences of the, what that might be if we're all, uh, gen, you know, tested for our genome early. But um, yes, yeah, so lots
1: of lots of lots of potential <laughs> risks, but on the other hand, there's mm. also lots of potential benefits. So for example, in clinical practice, we normally end up treating patients who have established disease. And for a long, long time, people have said we should be looking earlier in disease and moving towards preventative medicine. So preventative medicine generally works best if you can target it to people who are at high risk. If you try to introduce preventative medicine across a whole population where only a small fraction of the population is actually at risk, you will never succeed because nobody will actually do the, the, the interventions. So identifying people who are at high risk is something that uh, we can now do for many common heritable diseases. And uh, so I think that's going to be a really big change over the next five to ten years that we'll see in clinical practices that people will be using genomics to assist in early diagnosis of disease or in pre-symptomatic disease or even in groups who are just at high risk of disease so that you can target screening of those people. So, for example, um if you are at high risk of um, prostate cancer, that you have um, appropriate PSA testing, blood testing for prostate cancer, whereas those who are at low risk don't need to do it. Or mammography for breast cancer is another situation that you could think of that. Or that you could have preventative interventions like people who are at high risk of cardiovascular disease being more likely to be treated with statins to reduce their cholesterol. Um, And I think that that's going to mean that genomics will enable a really big change where we're treating... Presymptomatic or early disease, rather than or preventing, rather than waiting until people have disease, they're diagnosed with it, and then trying to deal with it. Then, so that would be a really big shift.
0: Mm, so it'll have um, public health policy implications, and hopefully some um, some efficiencies and and benefits.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm, yeah. So, although you've mentioned that the cost um, of sequencing is going down, there's many aspects of the re- of research that are. Um, labour-intensive in- and um, cost-intensive. So I'm assuming that's why um, most of your research seems to be done in, uh, in collaboration with you know other centres nationally and internationally. Um, is that the way we, we generally do research? I don't think there's much can be achieved just by QUT with its own means. Is that right? Yeah, no, look, um, I think
1: the situation is in genomics, in particularly in common disease research, uh, that you need to have absolutely massive sample sizes. So, for example, um, the studies that are looking at um, genomics of height as a, as a model trait are uh, looking at now more than half a million individuals that have been, that are being included in the genetic studies. Uh, for the Enclosing spondylitis study of 25,000 cases that we did, that required um, participation of you know, uh, China, Europe, North America, mm-hmm. as well as Australia. We just don't have enough patients. Oh, I see. So that's so the not, problem. it's not the money
0: so much. Uh, <laughs> it's mostly to do with access to uh, to um, sampling well, sizes.
1: Yeah, it is. But um, having said that, the uh, uh, particularly the, the, the genomics isn't cheap and if we do try to do um, large-scale whole genome sequencing at the moment, you know, think about 25,000 people times mm-hmm. $1500 per whole genome. It's, that’s a seriously expensive project. Uh, and the individual pro- the, the next step of trying to work out what you’ve so you've identified the genetic variant, you then need to work out how it functions to cause disease. And that process is also a very expensive, time-consuming process. And therefore t- people tend to work together in big international collaborative consortia for that as well. One of the big changes that occurred in um, genomics in the mid-2000s was because the genomics became so expensive, the Wellcome Trust, who funded the first what we call genome-wide association studies, insisted that you actually had to make all of the data publicly available within six months of it coming off the sequencer. Okay, big ask. <laughs> well, it really focused people's minds on mm. actually getting the data analysed mm. because it was going to go out public at that mm. point. Um, and the result is there are now these massive banks of, um, of data open that people data can use. open data. That, mm, yeah. Mm. That's um, meant that the, that Wellcome Trust data has been used hundreds of times over mm. and greatly increased its utility.
0: Yeah, and what can we expect from from that open data data um, uh, um availability so it's kind of applications that we never would have thought of um, with people coming at it from all kinds of angles and perhaps um, integrating with other available data sets is yeah, that right yeah totally yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so just a simple one for example when in a in a uh, disease gene mapping study you take a group of individuals who are, who've got the disease and you compare them with a group of individuals who are healthy healthy controls So the fact that they actually had a group of healthy controls that were genotyped meant that you didn't need then to recollect and re-genotype any healthy controls because they were already there. Mm -hmm. So that halved the cost at least of doing any study. Um, But uh now there are lots of rare data sets so for example um when we're doing the sort of functional genomics trying to work out how the genetic variants actually cause disease you need to know how each genetic variant operates in lots of different cell types and of course in the body there are hundreds to thousands of different cell types and so groups are going around and purifying those cell types and then characterizing them completely and putting that into that data into public databases so that then another group coming along can say, oh, well, you know, I'm interested in gamma delta cells or something, you know, goblet cells or something like that and you'll be able to just go to a database and say, all right, all right, here's my genetic variant, that's the cell type and how does it influence it and things like that without having to go and repeat that experiment all yourself. And that massively speeds things up and Massively speeds things up and yeah. we
0: can't know how that, um, yeah, what uh, might be... Uh, possible because of that, um, it sort of goes into the com- complex space, doesn't it? When uh, when that kind of thing happens, is there any um, uh, th- th- these large research collaborations? Um, are there tensions that build up in terms of who gets who gets credit and who gets uh, uh, which slice of the pie and uh, those sort of things? Are they hard to manage? Uh, look,
1: um, look, there are, there are often tensions, um, but uh, generally, what happens is that. Um, People rotate authorship round and um, go to considerable lengths to actually acknowledge the fact that that this that these studies can't be done by one individual. So actually the tensions have turned out to be less than they should be. Having said that, there are some countries where um, there's less sharing than would be recommended too. So for example, China does not allow either biological samples like DNA to come out of its out of the country ah, right. or genetic sequence to come out of the country. So they do not deposit any of their research genomic data into public databases and yet they are one of the biggest world users of public data mm. and that really winds people up.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you probably answered my final question. We've covered a bit about what might happen in the next five to ten years, which is probably all we can really see. Um, Twenty years is probably too long to kind of envisage, but um, what questions do you think that we'll have answers for maybe in five or ten years that that, um, we don't have now? Um,
1: Look, genomics is actually making huge discoveries about the basic function of uh, people and also about all different diseases virtually that you can consider. And so, um, you know, clearly there are some really massive unanswered questions in biological sciences and genomics is contributing a lot towards those, how the brain works, what causes um, neuropsychiatric problems, um, and all through to, uh, you know, what causes cancer and things like that. Those are, those are things that genomics is contributing to. I don't think any field of research is going to answer those on its own. So I've mentioned about what I think is going to happen to the practice of medicine, um, I th- also about what's happening in cancer we haven't touched on microbiome research which is another thing that genomics has um, That's enabled the gut, right? it's well it's the gut and also any other surface where you have bacteria virus mm-hmm. fungi and things like that but um, DNA sequences have meant that we can now profile all of the bacteria that somebody might carry at a particular surface whereas in the past you'd have to actually take a sample and you know, get out agro's plates and culture every bacteria separately, which meant that the vast majority of bacteria you would never identify. Now you can do that with a simple sequencer and uh, get a result which will tell you precisely the number and what type of bacteria and even what sort of bacterial resistance genes they carry. Um, and so that's completely revolutionising microbiology and that's, a, that's an, something that has come about through the investment in the Human Genome Project because it meant that sequencing capability got cheap enough to do it.
0: It did. I think we'll have to follow up, Matt. <laughs> okay. I think we have just way too much material for one short podcast. But we have touched on some of the management aspects, which I think covers, you know, being an Exec Insights um, podcast. But, look, I would thank you for your time and we'll, we'll have to catch, catch up again in a couple of years, I think, to see what's, what's materialised. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. You can comment on the podcast or make suggestions for future guests at execinsights at QUT.edu.au. We would love to hear from you. If you would like more information about professional development for yourself or your team, please search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of programs. I'm your host, Kate Joyner, with sound recording and editing by Landscape Elliott. See you next time.